Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to Slate Money, our weekly podcast guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York. And on the show this week, we are going to ponder the fate of Time Inc., which began trading on its own, kicked out of the nest of parent company Time Warner. We'll move on to talk about the chaos Uber is causing in Europe and also in the world of venture capital. And finally, we'll talk about Larry Summers' pick for best summer beach read, House of Debt. Actually, he said it looks likely to be the most important economics book of 2014, when we all know who he's subtweeting when he said that. (laughs) And, of course, we'll wrap up with our numbers lightning round, as we do every week. And this week, I've decided, as an executive decision, that when I introduce Kathy O'Neill, the head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University, she is going to tell me what her number is. Hi, Felix. Um, My number is 4.9 million. And, of course, we also have Jordan Wiseman, the Moneybox columnist for Slate. What's your number? My number is 4.3 trillion. He just had to do that. Even bigger. (laughs) (laughs) For for, for those of you counting along at home, um, my number, by the way, is 136. I'm keeping things in the realm of sensible. I am going to start, however, by talking about Time, Inc., which is a storied magazine company which has been part of a global media conglomerate called Time Warner. Once upon a time, AOL Time Warner, but we remember how that one ended. And it seems to have been dragging down the growth story of Time Warner because, as you may have guessed, magazines are not a growth industry right now. And as a result, Time, Inc. has been spun off into its own company. It's not making very much money by historical standards. It had earnings of a billion dollars a year in 2006, and those earnings are now down to roughly one-third of that level. It's dropping. It is encumbered with $1.3 billion of debt. Jordan, is this company doomed? Well, you know, I I think it depends on where you think the future of People magazine is going. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, I don't think I don't think we know quite yet where it's doomed. To be clear, are... People magazine accounts for well over half of Timing's profits and revenue. Last I saw, was twenty percent of revenues or oh, something. Okay. About twenty percent of revenues and uh, more, and twelve percent of subscriptions, something along those lines. But I mean. Yes, this this is problematic. You're you're essentially betting on one or two publications that are a couple publications that are going to be able to carry along this very this not even old media company, ancient media company, a uh, very text text based media company. We know how Felix feels about text. Um, <laughs> well, well, to be precise, it's not so much the text; it's the 
it's the ads in the mag, the print ads in the magazine. That's where nearly all of the revenues are coming from. Their digital revenues are tiny, Kathy. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm personally not someone who reads these magazines, so I'm I'm not feeling a huge amount of loss. You're not a lifelong Sports <laughs> Illustrated subscriber. No, I'm not. But it does bring up a, an interesting question in my mind, which is, um, you know, given how much debt it's been loaded up with, it, it brings to the my, to mind the question: When is debt a good thing? And and I, as far as I know, you guys can tell me if, I, if I'm missing something. Debt is a good t- thing in two different situations. One is when you are expecting growth and you're like, I can't wait for the profits to come in and then use them to grow my company. I need the, that money now. So it's worth it to borrow money and you know use it for that. That's one ca- situation. And the other situation is like as a tax write-off. I know that tax gets a different – I mean, sorry, debt gets a different treatment under taxing. But in this case – it doesn't look like either of those things is happening. So it just makes me feel like they have literally sent it off to die. Well, so I, I want to back up a little bit. Um, so the the new company, Time Inc., the solo, the, you know, the little bird that's flying off on its own now, uh, has about $1.4 billion of debt. And the whole company is only worth about $2.6 billion, $2.6 billion, something along those lines. Uh, the stock's been dropping a bit since it, came, since it started trading. Um, so it's got a... a uh, debt to equity ratio of about fifty percent. That's not terrible. It's not great. Um, but what why a lot of people raised their eyebrows when when this happened is that when the Wall Street when I, when News Corp spun off all of its publications, they gave it about two billion dollars of cash just to kind of keep it cushioned and keep it healthy so that they could transition. Um, so this, by comparison, looks like a much worse deal for this new company. And I think it's it's not just the debt that's worrisome. It's yes, they're going into life. They're going into kind of bachelorhood. Um, having to pay off their creditors, but at the same time, they're going into it having to cut. Um, They're talking about cutting newsroom expenses by about 25%. And I think what we've seen over the last few years is nobody really wins, no no news organization really wins by cutting staff. Um, News organizations start out lean and build, and they build lean, but they don't really do well by, uh, by by thinning themselves down and kind of degrading the product. Well, I think, as you said, this is People Magazine we're talking about, not so much a news organization, that there are journalists in timing, but then there's a lot of people producing a lot of magazine copy and you know I, I no matter how hard you try it's really hard to think of the single most profitable product that timing has which is the sports illustrated swimsuit issue as a news product it, it is not a news product so there are non-new things but you're absolutely right that um this is not a growth stock to say to to, to say the blindingly obvious news court interestingly is being positioned as a potential growth stock it's got as you say, billions of dollars in cash, which it can invest in digital and other growth opportunities. What's happening here, Kathy, is that Time Warner wants to be a growth stock. Time Warner wants to trade on high multiples. And as a result, it doesn't want a bunch of magazines which are shrinking rather than growing. On the other hand, a company which is shrinking and yet also profitable can be worth quite a lot of money, not as a growth stock, but just as a source of quite a lot of future revenues. And what they've done, I think, is load timing up with debt because they wanted to just get a billion dollars of cash off the bat out of the company, and then say, okay, you guys who want to buy the stock, you're not buying a growth stock. What you're buying is 
the manager's ability to maximize profits over the next couple of decades as long as this company lasts. And so long as the profits over the next couple of decades are worth more than the amount you're paying right now, you will make money. And that's not a way that public companies like to operate in general. That's much more of a venture capital or not so much so private equity, rather. That's the kind of way that the private equity people like to buy companies, load them up with debt, extract as much profit as they can, and then let them die. Yeah. Uh, but there's no particular reason why that can't happen in the public markets, too. Well, yes. I mean, a, a couple things. First of all, I agree with you that this is reminiscent of like the ni- mid-90s, the corporate raiders loading things up with debt. And I f- just because you mentioned that, rem- remembered a third reason that people like debt which is that people like to buy bonds that give you a big interest rate. They like big returns, bigger more than they like small returns. But I guess going back to like this actual situation, we've we've just mentioned and I'm just going to reiterate that time isn't really the same thing as a news corp news news corp or a news organization that serves as like a branding exercise for the company for the parent company and thus can be subsidized by the parent company. Like you'd look at Bloomberg or something or you look at News Corp and they have these they have these news organizations that lose money, but they still u- they're still useful because they're branding and because, well, they're influential and in, in a way that I don't think this well, is happening. Well, I think I would, I would agree possibly with Bloomberg. I would disagree with, with News Corp. You know, if the New York Post loses money, I don't see how there's any great sort of branding, marketing function that it's performing. Yeah, that was always I, I think that always had to do a lot more with Rupert Murdoch's kind of predilections and love of, of newsprint than it did because the Wall Street Journal was basically profitable. I mean, there are other publications that uh, Murdoch had this attachment to that were dragging it down. But I, I just want to say one thing or bring up one more thing before we leave the kind of topic of time, which is uh, the company that is essentially replacing it in the Time Warner constellation, which is it looks like they're going to be investing in Vice, which I don't know if uh, any of you, either of you watch Vice, but, you know, they're heavy on video. Um, they're this, you know, magazine started out in Montreal, basically, tra- you know, making fun of the way hip- hipsters dressed. Um, back in the day, they would have had a lot to say about your uh, floral shirt, Felix. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they, and now they, they've kind of turned into this gonzo journalism empire. And, you know, what... Even though they only have about seven million people visiting their website, and they do have this, they have a deal with HBO, which um, also Time Warner, of course, has an interest in as well. And then beyond that, there's just a sense that internet video is really, or video is really where the internet is heading, and it's so valuable. They seem to think that, yeah, sure, we'll make an investment in this that values it at two billion dollars, whereas we just unloaded a century-old institution of journalism that's now not worth much more than that. Uh, which brings me to the whole the whole question of pre-money versus post-money valuations, because people, we are moving on to Uber. And what is Uber value that you may or may not have taken an Uber to get around. But when Jordan says that Vice was valued at $2 billion, what that what he means is that after Time Warner has injected this billion dollar company called HLN into Vice and merged the two of them together, then the resulting thing is going to be worth $2 billion. But if HLN was already worth $1.2 billion, say, then that means that Vice is only worth $1 billion. We have seen the same thing when it comes to Uber. It just raised 
just over a billion dollars. And then people said, well, the valuation was 17 billion or the valuation was 18 billion. And the difference between the two is exactly the same. It's pre-money and post-money that if Uber was worth 17 billion before it raised a billion dollars and then people poured a billion dollars worth of cash into the company, then now it's worth 18 billion dollars. So in any case, Kathy, I'm going to start with you. Uber is worth $18 billion WTF. Yeah. Um, here's what I think. I think Uber is, is the new Groupon. I think Uber is like wildly overvaluated right now. And um, I'll say why. I think that, you know, speaking as someone who has recently decided to boycott Amazon, it, it's a lot harder to boycott Amazon than it would be to, to boycott Uber or just to switch to a different... Um, Uber-like thing. It's also, it's just an app. You can just switch. So it's very vulnerable to things like reputational risk. And there's been a lot of stuff going on that make people kind of hate Uber. Yeah, I I think there's some truth to that. Uh, Obviously, the controversy with Uber started out over the fact that it was marching into these markets and you know, some people said displacing the taxi industry and doing an end run on regulations and whatnot. I think that's uh, the, that concern has sort of fa- well it hasn't faded away in London, where taxi drivers are protesting and there's congestion in the streets and it's becoming a a, a sort of uh, brouhaha across the whole city. Uh, but th- there's this kind of secondary wave of concerns involving things like you know how safe are their drivers, who's insuring them, if they hit somebody on the road, uh, you know who pays for it, uh, and, and it, it does it is kind of these concerns are bubbling up. I do agree. On the other hand, as someone who uses Uber, I mean, it's a really nice service. If there was an equally good service, an equal, uh, an equally effective service that did exactly the same thing with, you know, same promptness and whatnot, would I switch to it? Maybe, out of ethical concerns, possibly. But there is also probably a network effect to some degree, which is the number of taxi or the number of drivers who are using it. So I don't know if it's that easy for a competitor, to, a more ethical competitor to swoop in and take its place. I don't know, Felix, what do you think? I don't think that Uber is particularly unethical. I do not think that Uber is particularly vulnerable to boycotts. In fact, I don't think that virtually any company is particularly vulnerable to boycotts. I can't think of a company which was actually particularly damaged by boycotts. Um, I do think that there are much higher barriers to entry in this market than a lot of people think. Yes, it's just an app. But as Jordan, you said, there are massive network effects. If I, I, I experienced this this morning. There were some massive number of inches of rain pouring down from the sky this morning. And I thought to myself, maybe I don't want to walk to the subway station. Maybe I want to get a cab. And I called up Get, which is one of Uber's competitors in New York, and there was nothing. I called up Halo, which is a taxi-hailing app in New York, and there was nothing. There was literally no cars. I called up Uber, and there were cars, and they would send a car to me. Now, they also implemented the surge pricing because it was pouring (laughs) down with rain. So if I'd actually taken my Uber, it would have cost me two and a half times the normal rate. But that's the way that Uber works, and and it's it's the way that Uber... it can consistently deliver you a car whenever you want it. And it's, and they can do that because they have surge pricing and they can also do that because they have probably one, at least one and possibly more than one order of magnitude, more cars on their network than anyone else. And as we've seen with Facebook, the size of your network, or WhatsApp for that matter, the size of your network is really all that matters. Okay, you know, I, I'm going to agree that 
strict boycotts don't typically work, but things get old and people stop using them. You know, like look at Friendster. Um, Things get new and people start using them as well. One of the most interesting data points about Uber is that when they started, they looked at the size of the cab market in San Francisco. They added up all of the taxis and all of the all of the car, you know private cars for hire that people took in San Francisco every day, and they said to themselves, you know, how you know how much money would we make if we got twenty five percent of that market or fifty percent of that market? Right now, already they have over a hundred percent of what used to be the market for cabs and black and taxis in. San Francisco. They have massively expanded the market because they have a level of convenience which just never existed before. Right. And I'm not saying that we're going to see Uber die and we're going to go back to taxis. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that I think a different competitor, not overnight, because yes, there is a network effect, but there's all will eventually supersede Uber if that that new startup has um, more clear ethical rules. And by, by the way, I'm not and just so talking what, about... What are the ethics that... A are... couple of things. So first of all, um, you know, let's just talk about something in this city. You know, like you have cabs that won't pick up um, people in bad neighborhoods, or they won't pick up women with children. You mean yellow cabs? Yellow cabs, yeah. In New York. Now, there's laws that say that you, they have to, but there's probably no law that says Uber has to. So I, I think they could eventually be hit by discrimination lawsuits. Although, I, you know, anecdotally... My African-American friends love Uber precisely because they always get picked up and they are not discriminated in the way that they are with yellow cabs. Interesting. Which brings us to the black cab strike in London, where a bunch of London cabbies decided to basically drive around Trafalgar Square in a circle and snarl up traffic in London all day to protest against the introduction of Uber, which only served to be the biggest... Advertisement for Uber that Uber could possibly have dreamed of, and they saw their signups go up by eight hundred and fifty percent. Jordan, what were these cabbies thinking? Well, so it's it, it's a fight over regulation in London. There, there, there's a distinction between cabs that have a meter and cabs that don't have a meter, and the black cabs have a meter, and they are subject to certain regulations. Uber, uh, even though it is you know based on time and distance, and whatnot. Uh, for whatever reason, London has decided they are not a metered service, and so they don't have to abide by the same sorts of regulations. And so it's kind of led to this whole, you know, dust up and to some really gnarly traffic. Um, but the bigger point, I mean, beyond this uh, kind of amusement or process that seems to have backfired pretty poorly, I do think it raises an interesting point um, that may sort of support what Kathy's saying, that someone could eventually take Uber's place, which is if an Uber-like company... Uh, figured out how to make nice with regulators and just play the system better than Uber has, whereas Uber has sort of marched in and tried to sort of insert itself. You you can imagine in certain cities that that right that they could somehow negotiate a regulatory advantage where their service gets priority, doesn't get cracked down upon, whatnot, and they could they could kind of slither in and take market share that way. So I do think that's another vulnerability that may be underestimated. That you know that. The Taxi and Limousine Corporation might decide that there's another – they prefer Halo or whatnot. Uber is undoubtedly still in relatively early stage, fast-growing company. There are a million different things which could go wrong. Indeed. And for all of that, I think that it is an absolute phenomenon. It 
Microsoft's app works incredibly well. It is clearly making unbelievable amounts of money. It's got huge amounts of revenue. It is expanding in cities around the world. I get very sad when I wind up in a city and it doesn't have Uber at this point. <laughs> and given that this equity is in the form of preferred shares, which you know will almost certainly never lose any value, I don't think that this investment was a, was a particularly bad deal. But in any case... We, we are, we're going to talk about House of Debt, which is the new book by Atif Mian and Amir Sufi, which was reviewed by Larry Summers, who said that it was the most important economics book of 2014. Kathy, is he correct? And who was he subtweeting? <laughs> well, look, there's been, um, you know, Piketty's book was was a major phenomenon in economics, and it Piketty's still is. Piketty's book being? Capital in the 21st Century. The, uh, the top of the New York Times bestseller right, list. Right, right, right. So it needs no introduction. Seriously. Um, so, yes, Larry Summers definitely, um, definitely trying to put that down. I think he did it twice in his review as well, because uh, he was talking talking about how these the house of debt the data supporting it is like beyond you know beyond question you know that was another kind of dig <laughs> um but you know in spite of that um and I and I'm no fan of Larry Summers I do really think this is a very important book and I'll tell you a little bit about it it's it's a book about why recessions happen and why they go away or don't go away and in particular they make the sort of startling claim that the banking crisis in the last in the great recession was an effect of the of the of an underlying economic problem, not the cause. So he they say people think that Lehman fell, the crisis happened in in banking, and that thus we went into a recession. But what actually happened was people levered up. They had a huge amount of household debt, so individual households had all this debt, and um, and then they stopped buying, and then we had a banking crisis because the banks were addicted to that debt. And so the real problem and the real cause of it was the debt. And then when we responded in a monetary policy kind of way, it didn't actually deal with the underlying problem. And therefore, that's why we're still essentially in stagnant economy. So when we treated the crisis as a financial crisis and we thought that the right response was to recapitalize the banks, what we were doing was treating the symptom rather than the cause. And what we should have been doing is... We should have been renegotiating mortgage debt. So what they do, and I think this is so smart, is that they use the proliferation of data that we have now to, instead of thinking about averages, instead of thinking about, oh, this is how much debt, these are how many mortgages, is the average mortgage underwater, blah, blah, blah. They actually look distributionally in the in the sense that they say who has the debt and who is hurting right now and who, what would they be spending if they had cash? And what he realized, what, what the what the book um, puts forth is that by propping up the banks, we're basically propping up people who have money, the lenders, the rich people. And what we're doing is we're ignoring the people who had borrowed money and were wiped out by the mortgage crisis, um, by the housing um, devaluation. And since those guys aren't getting any more money and they're the ones that are most likely to spend that money, that's why we're not seeing uh, a recovery. Jordan, do you buy this? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, Sufi and Mion for a long time now have almost been sort of the emissaries from the the real world back to the economics profession. Um, and for a long time, they've been they they've spent a, a lot of time explaining concepts that if you say them to if you write about them and a normal reader, just sort of a typical reader reads them, they go that yeah that that makes perfect sense. Things like the wealth effect, the idea that if your house the price your house goes up. 
um, you're going to spend more, even if it's just a paper gain and you still have a lot of debt. Um, in economics, this is controversial in, or ha- was controversial, has been controversial. I think to most people that that's not really controversial. It seems like common sense. And so they've been – I think a lot of people <laughs> saw the recession and saw – yeah, it started with people going bust on their houses. It started – people stopped spending because they were in debt and oil prices were through the roof. Um, and so they couldn't afford the gas in their cars. And then all – and then eventually we had a banking crisis all led to it. Um, a lot of this is a very real-world conception of what happened. But on the other side, on the economic side, there's been this idea that you know banks are the main channel through which recessions happen. Um, one of the great lessons of the Great Depression was don't let the bank – and probably correct and correct lessons was don't let the banks fail. Do not let the banks fail because otherwise that's just going to freeze up lending and you're not going to be able to restart the economy again. And that those lessons kind of fueled uh, responses from people like Ben Bernanke, who's a you know a student who was a scholar of the Great Depression. But uh, one of the reasons why this book I think is so important, and why Summers, even though he disagrees with some of the policy implications, very vis- whether or not he should be disagreeing is another question. But even though he he disagrees with them, his the analysis of why the recession happened is so important. Because whereas in the Great Depression we learned don't let the banks fail. Uh, this time, you know, this is a book that's saying our lesson needs to be don't leave people slammed with debt. We need to clear up the debt. Do not let do not do not let the homeowners fail. You know now. Any attempt to, to clear up the debt, and for the record, what we're talking about here is principal reductions, basically. What you're doing is you go along to banks and you say, this mortgage, which you originally had on your books at $500,000, is now worth half of that. So it's only worth $250,000. The smart thing for you to do is to write down the mortgage to $300,000. So the person, the homeowner, only owes $300,000. They have home equity again. They have money again. They'll start going out spending again. And the mortgage is going to go back up in value to $300,000 because now they're actually going to be able to pay it back. Um, the This is practically incredibly difficult to do, especially in the world where mortgages have been sliced and diced and sold off into a million different securitized vehicles mm-hmm. and the like. So it, whether the government actually had the ability to do that is an open question, but it was a good idea. And if it could have been done, it should have been done. Yeah. So first of all, we're not going to be able to cover this whole book. It's a great book. It's very readable. I want people to actually read it. They make a couple points with respect to securitization. First of all, that <clears throat> it it was actually the cause of the bubble. The securitization, they, they make the case using data that this was the cause. It wasn't that, you know, in spite of the fact that people took a lot of money out of their homes in the form of home equity loans, lines of credit, um, it wasn't the actual run-up of the price of their home that led them led to this crisis. It was the securitization, and ultimately the fact that they could that the banks could sell this stuff to investors, claiming that it was risk-free. Um, so the next thing they say about this is they actually propose a solution. I mean, they first of all they they acknowledge what Summers complained about in his column, which was that it was very politically difficult during crises to um, to negotiate. Re, um, debt, renegotiate principal, renegotiate and we saw, mortgages. We saw that when someone even thought of this as a possible idea, 
a certain man called Rick Santelli started ranting crazily on CNBC and more or less single-handedly created the Tea Party. That's this right. does not go down well with the American but, public. And, you know, they address the Rick Santelli rant very directly. They say, this is not moral hazard. These are people that, you know, did the right thing. They bought houses. I mean, so they actually address that in, I, th- I think, a pretty clever way. Um, but I'm another thing I wanted to mention is that what they're saying is if we give if we renegotiated the principles on mortgages it would have prevented foreclosures which would mean we wouldn't have that negative cycle of foreclosures bringing down house um neighborhoods and lo- and like increasingly lowering the prices of houses so we would have actually seen less of a dip in housing prices if we had allowed um um renegotiations of principle that's an incredibly important point there's a feedback loop which we could which they're claiming we should have avoided instead we, and that we can avoid in future if we do this thing called the shared responsibility mortgage which in very simple terms basically just means that if your house goes up in value you give the bank a bit more, and if your house goes down in value, you give your you give the bank quite a lot less. Yeah, I you know, I, it's from I think anyone who's an econ nerd's perspective, it's kind of a brilliant sounding idea. Um, but first off, I, I don't think anybody's ever successfully mortgaged or, or marketed anything as a responsibility product. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of the name shared responsibility. Second, that gets to a bigger point, which is uh, Americans are not really fans of cutting down on their potential upside. We're really Pollyanna-ish in the sense that we, you know, I mean, that that's actually a big part of the book is that what the expansion of debt did was it allowed all of the kind of irrational optimists who are always in the economy just to follow their dreams and buy more house than they could afford. Um, and so those same people who were, you know, hoping that house prices would go up forever, I, I have difficulty imagining them saying, sure, I'm going to give up some of the potential gain uh, if it'll protect me on the downside. They, these are not people necessarily think that way. So I'm a little skeptical. On the other hand, again, the, the econ nerd in me says, this sounds great. Other other industries renegotiate their principle all the time. Yeah. And that was not mentioned in the book. That kind of bothered me. Like commercial mortgages, when people figure out they're not going to be able to pay it, they renegotiate. So to some extent, this is just a contractual and sort of like cultural thing that we can address directly. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you that if if there's two kinds of mortgages on the market, one where it's shared responsibility and one where it's not, where it's standard, then people will be like, you know, salespeople will be like, you get a better deal if you take the standard. And, who, you know, we know housing prices are never going to go down. And that'll be the end of the shared responsibility market. God, I'm really frightened of a future where people have forgotten enough about what's just happened to It's say. in 15 minutes. Oh, God. Anyway. So, Jordan. Yes. Since we're on the subject of this multi-trillion dollar U.S. housing market, what is your multi-trillion dollar mar- number all about? Yes. So to, to, uh, to repeat, my number is $4.3 trillion, um, which is uh, about how much potential GDP the developed world has lost thanks to the Great Recession, um, which is a little bit more than the entire size of Germany's economy. Um, it, and let me just explain. Potential GDP is the idea of basically how much we could produce if given the fundamentals of economy, our economy, things like you know, the labor, how much labor is available, how many factories we have. Um, if we were firing on all cylinders, how much output could we create? What is our best possible economy? And according to a Johns Hopkins professor, for 23 developed countries, between them, we have lost $4.3 trillion or about 8% total of our potential GDP. And that's $4.3 trillion per year. So that's yes. this year and next year and, and the following year and... Or as of 2015 is the... Year. But yeah, so and then it goes from there. So that's... 
where we are. That's right. I will, I will follow up with my number, which is slightly more optimistic one. I think I have a good number this, That's good. this week, which is 136. And 136 is a number of plaques, actually. When you used to walk up until a couple of days ago, when you would walk into the Tesla Motors headquarters, the first thing that you would see was 136 patents sitting on the wall. And they were all of the patents which are owned by Tesla Motors and allowed tesla to make all of its amazing electric cars and what elon musk the ceo of tesla announced this week was that he was taking symbolically taking them down off the wall they are no longer on the wall but he has also said he is never going to prosecute anyone for violating those patents he's basically putting them in the public domain that what he wants is not to compete against other electric car makers, but he wants electric cars to compete against gasoline cars. And so he's saying to the world, here are my patents. I put a bunch of effort into creating all of this science, and now I'm giving it to the world, and let's all go out there and make electric cars. And I don't think that's going to hurt Tesla one bit, and I'm a huge fan of this decision. I would just add, I I totally 100% agree with you on this. Um, I think part of the reason it's not going to hurt Tesla is because patents aren't really the barrier to entry for much of the car industry. I mean, they help, having the technology helps, but things like having a reputation for you know, safety, as GM is learning lately, um, are are much bigger deal and being able to, you know, brand your car correctly. So in a way, it's a a no-lose proposition for him. I hope it leads to a bunch more open sourcing of patents. Um, My number is 4.9, which is the number of dollars that David Welch... 4.9 or 4.9 million? Sorry, 4.9 million. Excuse me. (laughs) Um, That's an important uh, detail. Um, Kathy at (laughs) mathbabe.org. Kathy at mathbabe.org is the first person to get six orders of magnitude (laughs) out in her number. Sorry, I just get so confused with the trillions, the millions. Um, So that's how much money um, David Welch made last year. I tried to look for his net worth, but I couldn't find it. Um, He's an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley who is behind the teacher tenure case in in California, um, removing the, um, hopefully from his perspective, removing tenure from teachers and by declaring it unconstitutional. Um, My personal opinion is that this is an absolute, like, red herring. We're not actually going to solve the problem of the achievement gap between poor and rich kids by um, vilifying the teachers and removing the power of the unions. I, I couldn't agree more on that one. The if you, if you look at the highest achieving educational systems in the world, none of them do that by firing teachers on a regular basis. Uh, and and the, by far the biggest predictor of educational outcomes is child poverty rather than anything about the teachers. But It's child poverty, and I just want to throw in that, like, historically, teachers have been just underappreciated and underpaid because it's been one of the only um, possible jobs for, for very competent women. So we have this like, very long history, and this is not going to be the solution. On which note, from an extremely competent, underpaid woman, Kathy O'Neill, our show is coming coming to a close. Thank you so much for listening to it and please listen to it more if you liked it subscribe to slate money in itunes we're easy to find just search for slate money in the itunes store and if you have something nice to say about us leave us a review it will help to spread the word about the show and also write to us with your comments and complaints and anything else we're slate money at slate.com the producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts 
is Andy Bowers. For Cathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.